everybody, it's me, Peaches Christ, and you're listening to the Midnight Mass Cult Movie Podcast, and we're here for another rousing, exciting episode. Uh, I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, uh, of course, the wonderful Michael Verratti. Michael, what movie or uh, cult icon or even genre will we be discussing today? Well, this week, dear listeners, we are kidnapping our friends and killing the teen dream as we delve into 1999's cult classic Jawbreaker, written and directed by our dear friend Darren Stein. And I know, Peaches, you uh, and I have a lot to say about this awesome movie. It's true. I mean, it's one of those movies, like many of the movies we will discuss on uh, Midnight Mass, uh, that I have celebrated in person um, a number of times. And I know you've even attended some of those events over the years. Yes. And it's been, you know, a a wonderful way to celebrate a movie that has a bona fide cult following. And it's been wonderful to get to be there uh, along this journey with my friend Darren Stein, who you're, of course, friends with as well, and watch as the movie became a cult hit. Because as you and I know, when it came out, uh, it had its fan base, but it was a smaller fan base when you compare it to what is happening now, where Jawbreaker is, you know, really uh, beloved by many sick and twisted fans around the world. Well, and it's true that a lot of films that become cult films, it takes time, right? It's not usually an immediate out-of-the-gate success. If so, it may not even really truly be a cult film. Jawbreaker had its immediate fans, but to get to the place where it is today, as you said, it it took a while. And, you know, seeing you host events at Midnight Mass or at San Francisco Sketchfest and attending the anniversary events over the years with Darren, I got to host one with him and Rebecca and Julie Benz uh, on the roof of a hotel here in uh, Hollywood for the 20th anniversary. And just even looking at the, the shape of those audiences over the years, you know, by the time we hit the 20th and we're on this rooftop with two of the girls from the movie, there are kids coming up to show Darren their tattoos and like quoting lines. And it was it's just so wild to see that the tide change. Yeah. And they have homemade merchandise. The, yeah. the fan art is incredible. And as we discussed with Darren, uh, Darren, you know, really has uh, embraced it. And so if you're a fan out there of Jawbreaker and you do create Jawbreaker uh, merch or fan art or really anything, make sure you tag Darren because the the likelihood is he'll reshare it if he likes it, of course. I've Um, never seen a creator engage with the the fan art and fan works quite the way that Darren has. It's so loving and you can tell he enjoys celebrating the movie as much as the fans do. Absolutely. And, you know, Darren and I, um, Darren is slightly older than I am, but (laughs) we're... we're yeah, I know. To look at us, you would think Peaches is, you know, his daughter. But um, no, we're we're almost the same age. And, you know, Darren uh, and I obviously grew up with so many of the same um, cultural obsessions, um, which we'll talk about. But one thing that I think is really interesting is that Darren, in this film in particular, really helped create a new cult 
genre. You know, we had the genre of juvenile delinquent films from the 50s, of course. We've had we had the genre of high school. You know, the 80s gave us John Hughes and we had this sort of high school, you know, melodrama, you know, uh, of, of high school students, which did touch on cliques and things of that nature. But it wasn't until Heather's that we got something that I like to call the high school bitch genre, <laughs> right? Where yes. The bitches are amazing, and the dialogue of the bitches is just incredible. And I think why Darren is so important is that Heather's uh, could have just been this sort of anomaly, this bizarre, you know, um, twisted take on the high school teen experience that was just so dark. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, let's face it, it was Columbine before Columbine. It was, it was ahead of its time. It was just wild and amazing. And Darren comes along and follows up Heather's with Jawbreaker. And just when you thought that, you know, Courtney um, in Jawbreaker couldn't get any meaner, she does, right? So you've got Heather Chandler as the queen of all bitches. And then you've got uh, Courtney, um, what's her name? Courtney Shane. Courtney Shane, yep. Come along and, you know, actually just be even more of a monster. And then, of course... To round out the uh, the trilogy of bitch movies, you get Mean Girls after Jawbreaker. And I think Jawbreaker's place in this sort of bitch sandwich is really significant because it really is, you know, it is sort of what kind of said, yes, this is a thing and we're doing this and we're going to make more of these movies. Right. And I think that that is truly the tribute, uh, the credit to Jawbreaker's, you know, success and, and longevity is and, and we see this in horror all the time, too, where one movie comes along and it sort of sets a mold. And then there are a lot of replicators and those replicators never quite hold a candle. And yet when something takes that formula and steps it up or pushes it in a new direction, it changes the game. So yes, from the hair product infused primordial ooze of Heather's does Jawbreaker walk, but then because Darren is Darren and he is able to take things to that ultra extreme, he pushed Courtney and the Jawbreaker experience into a whole new direction that now everybody was scrambling, scrambling to emulate in its wake. I mean, anytime I see a slow motion walk down a hallway, whether it's on Riverdale or whether it's in uh, other teen movies, I know exactly where it came from. It came from Jawbreaker. You know, even and, and it, it trickles down even into the, the bitchy teen girls who are on things that don't have teeth. If you watch High School Musical and see <laughs> Sharpay Evans and think that Jawbreaker and Heathers and Mean Girls did not inform that character, then you are sorely mistaken. Right, absolutely. And what's delicious about Jawbreaker um, is that it, it that it does both, right? It created these tropes, these original tropes, and it also paid homage to uh, the great films that came before it, such as, of course, Carrie. You know, the yes. whole finale of Jawbreaker is so wonderfully Carrie. Um, and, uh, you know, with, with cultural, especially cult cultural iconography such as casting Pam Greer, you know, as a fierce, you know, detective in the film and Carol Kane and, you know, and all the cameos. Uh, right. Uh, of course, Marilyn Manson, you know, shows up in the, uh, in the, there's so many things, Michael, that I'm realizing now as, as close friends of Darren that we didn't even touch upon in this interview we're about to introduce because I'm realizing I, I know some of the great stories about Marilyn Manson being on set, and we didn't even get to that point when we spoke with Darren. So 
maybe we'll have to have Darren on the show again because he is a, he's not just a friend of the the podcast. He's chosen family. Truly. And I think, though, that that's also a credit to the legacy of a cult film, because cult cinema tends to have mythology that no matter how much we celebrate it can never be truly encapsulated in one hour or so conversation. You know, just as we hang up uh, discussing one movie, uh, three other things that I want to talk to you about it pop up in my brain. And Jawbreaker right. is no different. And the thing is, is knowing Darren as well as we do and getting to celebrate Darren uh, over these years and, and all of the things that he's done, there's so much to say about this movie. And so if you are here to worship at the altar of Jawbreaker, in a way, this is your primer, but but keep celebrating because, you know, this is just the beginning strut down the hall. It absolutely is. And with that, Michael, you gave us the perfect segue uh, into this interview with our our dear friend, my GBF, uh, (laughs) the writer and director of Jawbreaker himself. It's Darren Stein. All right, everybody. Now, it is a real thrill and privilege for me to introduce our next special guest uh, to the Midnight Mass podcast in this discussion of Jawbreaker and its cult. Uh, This person is not only the writer and director of Jawbreaker, but a dear, close, personal ghoul friend of yours truly, as well as Michael's. Um, Let's see. I met Darren uh, literally uh, 37 years. No, I'm just kidding. It feels like that, but it was probably more like 20 years ago, around 20 years ago. I had made a bunch of short films. He had made a documentary that is fabulous about his childhood uh, as a filmmaker growing up in the uh, Southern California suburbs called Put the Camera on Me. And we um, met... And it was kind of like we were sisters from the from the moment we met. We realized that we needed to be uh, best friends, and we um, have had many adventures since, including him uh, producing my first and only feature film, All About Evil. I'll forever be grateful to him for uh, helping me get that off the ground. And yeah, I just love him so much, and I could go on and on and on. But let's welcome to the podcast the fabulous Darren Stein. Hey. Hello. So happy to be here. Love you both. Love you. Well, we're glad you're here. Okay, so to kick things off, Darren, I know that when you and I met, one of the things that we bonded over probably first and foremost was our love of cult movies and 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 horror and, you know, transgressive cinema and, you know, at that time, while Jawbreaker uh, was popular, it hadn't quite yet achieved the level of cultness that it now enjoys. I mean, it is, it has evolved to become one where when you mention you're doing a podcast on cult movies, one of the first comments made by someone I don't know was, are you going to do Jawbreaker? Uh, so that to me is like, You've you've made it. Jawbreaker is a bona fide cult hit. Uh, let, let's talk about the evolution of it. You know, from from it, you know, being made by you, um, obviously inspired by other cult movies, to actually becoming a cult movie. Yeah, I mean, I just sort of wrote a movie that sort of came like I was desperate to make a film out of film school, and I wanted to make a horror film, and I just started writing what I wanted to see. You know, like it was like high school girls. I went to an all boys school. So I wasn't around girls in my high school experience. 
So I sort of wrote this movie about sort of the girls I wish I'd gone to high school with, but the girls were also sort of a manifestation of me not being able to be myself at an all boy at an all boy school. So it became this very like intrinsically transgressive <laughs> movie because I guess you know I was velvet ranging on on paper as far as like working out working out all those demons from my adolescence. You know, it's interesting, too, because you are a fan and student of cult films, as Peaches says, and you have your obsessions and you know what it is to obsess over a movie. It is a well-documented part of your history that you worship at the altar of Rocky Horror. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Rocky Horror is fundamentally part of the DNA of Jawbreakers, so much so that a line of Frankenfurters is also in the movie. And um, let's just talk a little bit about that, that journey of you being an obsessed fan to taking that DNA and putting it into your own work. I think we've all spoken about this before. When you're a kid, you just have this weird like part of your DNA that obsesses over strange movies and strange things. And it's not like you learn that, that, that sort of interest. It's built into you. And so as a kid, I remember seeing the poster for Rocky Horror seeing the bloody lettering and the red lips and immediately being drawn to that collision of horror and glamour. And I was too young to see the movie. I couldn't even see the film for years. So my form of, of obsession was buying the Roxy Cast record, buying the book at B. Dalton, joining the Tim Curry fan club. I mean, I was eight years old. Asking, you know, 10, nine or 10, <laughs> asking for my mom, asking my mom for like, you know, the t-shirt from the store with Frank and the Pearls, you know? And luckily for me, mom and dad, like they weren't like, didn't make me feel different or like other or like weird for being drawn to that kind of film, you know? And I couldn't obviously see it because it was at midnight. And then a neighbor of mine down the street with much more permissive parents got his hands on a, a bootleg. Someone must have shot at the midnight show. So I saw Rocky at his house on his like projection screen, one of those red, blue, green light ones that, you know, that very old school. And, um, but before I ever saw it, I sort of built the movie in my head. And I'm sure you guys can relate to that. Being cr- yeah. creating a film in your head before even being able to see it. Yeah, and I think you know it's funny. You, you and I talk about how similar we were growing up because we're uh, we're closer in age than uh, young Michael is, and you know we uh, tend, <laughs> tended to um, you know have similar experiences. And one of the the special things about Rocky Horror was that it was very much in the zeitgeist, but not on VHS for many, many years. And so this was, we grew up at a time in the 80s where things came on cable television and they came to the video store and that's how we consumed them as young kids who were watching things we should not have been watching. Thank God for cable TV and VHS because we weren't allowed to go see R-rated movies unless our parents took us or whatever. And uh, something like Rocky Horror, you know, my parents actually were pretty okay with me um, sneaking into movies and I, I saw things I should not have seen, you know, like I saw Fatal Attraction, you know, when it came out or whatever. Um, but Rocky Horror, because it played at midnight, I couldn't get a fucking ride to the mall, you know, like I, I couldn't come home at 2.30 in the morning when I was 10 years old. So I totally relate to that sort of um, obsession because I saw the movie poster, you know, when we'd go into DC and I I knew there was something about it that spoke to me. And I also had the album, you know, um, and, the, you know, with the Roxy cast, you know, recordings. And so I, I totally agree with you. And do you remember, um, was your first screening of it uh, when it finally was released on VHS or did you actually get to go see it 
they didn't release Rocky on VHS for a while because the midnight movies were doing so well. So I, I remember right. it came out a little bit later on, on home video. Um, but it was this kid down the street, Jordan Cole, who's now, he's, he's now known as Zombie Joe. He has this like horror Grand Guignol theater in LA. So Jordan and I were like the, the freaky kids on the street. <laughs> yeah. He was like on one end, I was on the other, and he got his hands. I, I remember I, I first saw Dawn of the Dead at Jordan's house. Well, it's so funny that, that that's another really funny story that that Darren Stein grew up with Zombie Joe. And if you're in this sort of horror world or haunt world, you know who Zombie Joe is. And if you don't know, you should look him up. He does these incredible sort of theatrical uh, performance pieces. It's it's truly zombie theater is the best way to describe it. And it's fabulous. Yeah. And, you know, he's kind of legendary. They're so cool. Yeah. So that it's just funny to me that, you know, that 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 and the other thing that's so interesting about your uh, childhood Darren is that if people are interested in your childhood they can actually go and and see put the camera on me and actually see where you know it's documented in that documentary that Darren as a young kid was truly obsessed with Rocky Horror you know there there are clips of Darren acting it out I was a super freak uh and Jordan was too I remember Jordan made little movies also, and he once cast me as a screen queen, as a, as a I think it was just a girl, a, a female character, in this slasher he made in his backyard. And I remember screaming like a girl and running around and feeling kind of objectified by Jordan at like age, <laughs> at age, <laughs> at age ten. Like it was, it was. I didn't, I didn't like being like on the other side of the camera, you know. Right. That's that's amazing. One of the great things about Rocky that I think was the connective tissue for so many of us who discovered it both at the theater and at home and in this way with, you know, your neighbor, Zombie Joe, is that camaraderie of fandom. Like, you know, you you find a Rocky fan, you find your people. And with each cult film, it's sort of subsections of that. Like, you find your another Jawbreaker fan, you find your people. And one thing that's very I think unique amongst you, amongst many cult filmmakers, is you have a great connectivity with your fans. Like you are very interactive with them. When there's artwork, you share it. If someone gets a tattoo, you post it. When things happen, and you, that's a conscious decision to engage because some people stay far away. But you, you are right in the middle of the fandom. If there is a jawbreaker hurricane, Darren Stein is the eye. And did you decide early on that you, you wanted to revel in the celebration or how'd that go? It wasn't until I made GBF, uh, which was what? How many years after Jawbreaker, 10 years later, um, that I joined Twitter and Instagram. And I hadn't been on those social platforms for all the early 2000s. You know, because what year was GBF? I, I forget, like 2008 years, eight years ago. So, when I got on Twitter, I started searching Jawbreaker, and I was like, "Holy shit, people are like obsessed with this, and people are <laughs> and people are talking about it." And that's when it suddenly occurred to me that I should really sort of take advantage of that and really like embrace it. And and it didn't because I just didn't see the point in, uh, in joining social media until I had another film to promote, you know. And do you think that your uh, your, your sort of connection to films like Rocky Horror and the reason you were drawn to Rocky Horror is what you're finding um, young people uh, who grew up with Jawbreaker are, you know, are they attracted to Jawbreaker, do you think, for similar reasons? Yeah, yeah. I think um, a lot of people are into the, well, first of all, the sort of pitch black darkness of it. They really love that because, you know, even in Heathers, you know, it's not quite as dark because it's sort of the guy's idea to start killing everybody. Christian Slater's, it's not the girls. Rose is super malicious. You never have any idea why she's so evil. She just is. You know, she has no comeuppance whatsoever. People like that. 
And there's the whole like queerness of it. The movie was, I guess, evidently made by a queer person. So people really get into the, the, code, the coding in it, whether it's through the colors, through uh, Fern, who may or may not be a lesbian, and through one friend, you know, Eve, who's, you know, I know that you guys are interviewing, who's a, a fan who's trans, she said that the film doesn't seem to have a male or female gaze. It has this sort of like this genderless sort of perspective, which I thought was really interesting. But a lot of trans people really love it as well because, you know, the heightened glamour and also Fern's journey, um, which I'm sure Eve will tell you about when you talk to her, um, you know, sort of becoming glamorous and beautiful, but realizing, you know, she's not a good person and she, she still has to do the work, the inside work, which a lot of trans people, you know, when they, they become women, they're gorgeous, but that's just trappings. They're, they still have to, you know, figure out who they are as a person, right? Well, so, yeah, so much of what you just described, it makes sense because it is... You, you you could apply the same sort of sentiments towards Rocky Horror, including, I think, one of the most important being that you and Richard O'Brien made unapologetically queer movies. You know, like, there's no, there was, there, it doesn't feel like there's any restraint where Jawbreaker was concerned. You know, uh, uh, someone who's worried about being perceived as queer would not have made the movie Jawbreaker, nor would they have made the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I think fans really appreciate that, especially in a genre like the high school teen, you know, movie, because we hadn't seen that before. I didn't set out to make a queer movie, by the way, but obviously because I'm queer and it's so ingrained into my DNA, it lives and breathes that, you know, which I think is great, you know, but the queer community didn't totally embrace the movie, nor the horror, the horror community and the queer community have just sort of embraced it in the, in the last five years, which I think has been a really interesting thing. I mean, queer people have loved it, but it hasn't been called a queer movie. Like, Recently, Sundance did a post about other queer movies for Pride, and Jawbreaker was on the first page, you know? Because, you know, Jawbreaker premiered at Sundance. And it's like, oh, that's so cool, because I was like, it's not overtly a queer movie. You know, it's never said that any of those characters are gay, lesbian, trans, allies, anything. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about the queer draw to the movie, because one of the things, you know, you talk about Rocky Horror, of course, we're drawn to Frankenfurter. When we have discussions about Disney movies, queer people love the villains. And while you were talking earlier, you spoke about the outre nature of Courtney Shane. And in the real world, we would not like her at all. But on cinema, we live for her. And what is that draw? Like, tell me about Courtney. I think it's the forbidden. I think it's just being relentlessly evil and just being lawless and getting to actually kill and be glamorous and be heightened and then not, not, not play by the rules in high school, not, not even exist in the framework of any kind of reality. You know, that was Frankenfurter for me. I remember seeing that character and being like, is he a boy? Is he a girl? Oh, uh, he's beautiful. He's sexy, but he's, he's, is he, he's monstrous. I'm scared of him. I'm attracted to him. You know, there was so much push and pull, you know, in, 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 that, in, that, in those images, in that imagery. Um, and as gay kids, we love, you know, we love the big baddie, the big female, like whether it's Cruella and 101 Dalmatians or the remake or Ursula, whoever it may be, you know, Divine, obviously, and Pink Flamingos. You know, the John Waters influence, I didn't even, I, okay, listen, we all, all of us love John Waters. Obviously, we've talked about this a lot. Peach is his friend, sure. friends with him. Um I rented those movies as a kid. I used to enjoy making the neighborhood kids watch them. And they were, <laughs> and they were fucking terrified and revolted. But like, I had to make them watch it because I knew that, you know, it was yeah. kind of, it was like, I guess my sadistic side. I don't know what it was. But, you know, <laughs> but yeah, but if you watch, but I was recently watching Pink Flamingos in Female Trouble, I don't know, like a, a year or two ago. And I was like, holy shit, these films really did influence me a lot. 
and I don't speak about John Waters that much. I because I know, uh, you know, other people. Because I, I like, for example, I've always thought that Joshua had a peaches has had a, you know, he's like your number one, right? Well, it's just, it's that thing where I grew up in Maryland and I think because of that connection and then because of my discovery of John Waters coinciding with my discovery of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but especially because John and Divine and Mink Stoll were literally in my backyard and that was a million miles away from Hollywood. You grew up, you know, with Hollywood all around you, you know, which is so, I mean, and sometimes I'm so jealous of you and I'm like, what a fucking bitch Darren is because you know he had such you know such a great life growing up because you like had your dad take you to see like alien you know at the Egyptian or you know you went to like man's Chinese theater to see you know whatever I don't know these amazing incredible you know Hollywood movies and I was a kid stuck in Maryland literally dreaming about kids like you you know that I only only saw in movies and, and I'm, I'm jealous of you too when I when I first met you on friend on Friendster <laughs> I was like, Pe- uh-huh. Peaches Christ, oh my God, who is this? You know, and why do I not? He has a, he does, she does these cult movie screenings and he, in drag, it's all drag queens recreating parodies and it's at midnight and cause that was back when no one knew what was happening in San Francisco because there was no social media, you know? Yeah, but no part of you said, I wish I grew up in Maryland. Not Maryland, but yeah, but like. <laughs> <laughs> but being a famous drag queen and like. The way, like the way you came up, I mean, you're truly, you're truly an underground icon, you know. So that, that to me was completely fascinating, and that's why I was like, how did I not? How is she not on my radar? I was like mad at my health myself. I thought I was. Well, that's why we bonded so much so quickly, and it's funny. I think both of us have similar experiences, and I'm sure Michael can relate to this. Where you know, when we made All About Evil. Um, you know, we made the movie, I'd written the script, you know, but then it wasn't until years later, I'd be watching, I don't know, it could be anything. Like I could be watching the movie Demons and, you know, all of a sudden go, holy shit. Oh my God, that's so embarrassing. I totally stole that. You know, like, you know, like you, you realize like even lines of dialogue and things like you not, not the, some, sometimes the critics will call it, you know, an homage. It's like, oh no, honey, I didn't even realize I did that. Some, some part of my little juvenile brain, you know, stored that moment away for, for me to write later in, in life. And, you know, I think with Jawbreaker, it's, it's especially interesting because I too have gone on this journey with you. Um, you know, we did, we've done multiple midnight movie screenings of it and I've been able to see the cult of it grow from when we did a show at the New Art to you know then years later doing a show at the freaking Castro Theater you know and, and bringing the the girls out on stage with you and and getting to have that experience and really watching the cult grow and grow and grow I mean and, and pretty rapidly and pretty you know pretty substantially and I actually think social media has helped the cult grow I think it's been like that perfect you know the age in which people became obsessed with it but what I had not considered until this very podcast which is exactly why we're doing it is the fact that Courtney, in many ways, is like a vicious gay guy. Like I, I hadn't really thought about her as like an archetype of a of a of a kind of a, a a gay male because her behavior. You know, yes, yes, women can be shitty, but when gay men are shitty, ooh, watch out. Well, <laughs> and did Darren not say earlier it was part of putting that velvet rage on paper? And Makes I, sense. And I didn't process that until just recently. You know, so it's like. It's just very interesting how these things happen. I mean, but by the way, look at Ursula, you know, look at Divine. Divine is John Waters' alter ego. He's, yeah. a, he's a gay man. Ursula is, yeah. uh, uh, what, what are their names? The 
Well, Ursula is modeled after Divine, and you know the the Divine, the, the, yeah. the the Disney you know queer uh, villain archetype it, it runs deep, you know, and and even even now, I think with all the discussions about you know queer horror coming up for the first time ever, what we're realizing is so many of us identified with. Uh, queer characters that on paper and politically are problematic, but it doesn't necessarily make them less interesting or exciting, you know, and, and I think with Courtney, you know, I think it, it, she is a sort of fantasy, you know, and, and maybe a queer outsider fantasy. Um, and, and you're, you're molding now looking at it. I'm like, Oh my God, she is Frankenfurter like I'm? I'm like, oh my god! I, even I'm having these revelations. She's, yeah, she's in, she's into kink. She's punk rock. Yeah, she's sadistic. You know, she's yeah. she's pure evil. She's satanic. They even call her. You know, she's Satan in heels, right? She has no empathy. No. She's completely a narcissist. Yeah. You know, and it's that is Frankenfurter exactly. <laughs> and it's so funny because you know when I was casting the movie, Rose had done the Doom Generation, and she had done mm-hmm. Scream. And, you know... Oh, she did Scream before Jawbreaker. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. I think Scream came out, what, 96? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and Jawbreaker came out in 99. But, you know, I was like, oh my God, I go, is it too on the nose? I remember thinking this. Is it too on the nose to cast Rose as Courtney? I really actually did not want to cast Rose. You know, before I uh, did did cast her, I had offered the part to Parker Posey. Because mm-hmm. I, I met Parker at a gay bar in LA, and I was a fan of hers. And I was like, oh my God, I love you. Will you read my script? She was super nice. She's like, yeah, send it to New York. I sent her the script. And she said, she, she wrote me back this great postcard with Neil Diamond on the cover. It was like a, a vintage Neil Diamond thing. And then on the back, it was like, dear Darren, I love your script, but I have nothing high school left in me. But if you were to cast it a la American Graffiti, where everyone's in their 30s and balding, count me in. <laughs> oh, that's nice. So yeah, it was a sweet I cast. have to say, I love, I love, love, love Parker Posey. Um, but I think, you know... Jawbreaker, Rose, it's it's kind of like how I feel about Natasha Leone in our movie. You know, uh, I I now can't. I know you know as well as I do that um, we had a, a a bunch of different people playing the female lead in All About Evil, and you know, uh, thank God we got Natasha at, at the eleventh hour because of our director of photography, Tom Richmond, who asked me who was my first choice really, and we said Natasha Leone. And we got her. Now I can't imagine anyone else playing that part. And I feel the same way about Jawbreaker, where it's like Rose, it's almost like Rose and Courtney, you know, where they start and stop, you know, it's hard to to say. And I mean that with love to Rose. I mean, I think Rose is so kind of larger than life and she's done extraordinary things and she does not back down and she's not afraid of confrontation and she's obviously a powerful punk rock kick-ass woman and you know it's hard to imagine you know I don't know I I feel like Rose McGowan and Courtney Shane are kind of you know synonymous and I I mean that as a good thing. No I think you agree you'll both agree as filmmakers like when you cast casting spiritual the person who's meant to play the part obviously the person who's meant to play the role will end up playing it, and it'll be brilliant. It'll be exactly what it's meant to be. Yeah. And, and and like you're right, Courtney uh, Rose is, is perfection, and she fully embraced the camp of it and the costume design. You know, she was collaborating with Vicky about outfits, and you know, one day she came to the set in this like 
sleeveless, you know, turquoise cutout Argyle thing that Marilyn Manson had, had brought, bought her. And I was like, oh my God, you have to wear that in the movie. You know, so we put it right in the movie. Yeah. You know, what I'm interested in, uh, you mentioned how Parker Posey had said, I don't have any high school left in me. But the thing about Jawbreaker is it has a lot of high school to give. And of course, it was influenced in many ways by high school movies that came before. But as we were speaking earlier, we talked about how we as filmmakers and cult fans in our DNA, it's there and we accidentally sometimes borrow things. And you look now at the landscape of of teen films and teen television and how frequently Jawbreaker has influenced those things, either directly or indirectly. And, you know, every time you see a slow-mo hallway strut, you can't help but think, well, there's Darren Stein. What's that like to know that you have made something that has changed the course of teen film conversation? It feels great, you know? I don't know. I, it's, you know, I'm humbled and, you know, it's, it's nice, you know, I... I don't, you know, it's funny because I look up to these other, these, these, you know, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or Mommy Dearest or John Waters or Rocky Horror, or these, tr- you know, like Alejandro Hodorowski, David Lynch, El Moldovar, you know, so I just look at Jawbreaker and I'm like, oh, that's a cool movie. I'm glad I made it. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think of it that way. You know, I, I, you know. Right. I, I will say this though. This is interesting. I remember being, watching the dailies for the movie, which for people who don't know, it's like what you shoot each day when you're in production. And I remember watching them in the beginning I'm thinking, oh my God, this movie looks unlike anything I've ever seen. And, and you know what's amazing about your film is how evergreen the look of it is because so many films that came out in 1999 already look so dated and so awkward. And, you know, 1999 is definitely not known for cool fashion. You know, it's like, yeah, sure. We know that like the goth new wave scene, that that stuff never went out of vogue or punk rock like that never went out of vogue. Those are all really great fashions. But when you think about 1999, we're talking hideous, boring, you know, generic bullshit. And here comes Jawbreaker, where I challenge anyone to watch that movie who doesn't know what year it's from and, and to actually correctly <laughs> to say 1999. It is so colorful and joyous and candy coated and you can see how it has inspired so many you know looks from from you know movies that came after it well i think that's part of the queerness of the movie though right because you could have easily had the fashion of the time but instead you created sort of a drag for each of those girls it is drag, it's drag let's face drag. it yeah. yeah because it references you know greece which is 50s punk yeah. rock punk rock which is like late, late 70s you know vivian westwood and the bondage stuff Things like Rocky Horror, then it has like, you know, um, a little fetish and like 20s film noir to it. There's a lot going on in, in, inside of the fashion. And then at the end of the day, we wanted all the colors to be sort of the jawbreaker, like these, these, these kind of garish jewel tones. So the jawbreaker itself became the inspiration for not just the costume design, but for the production design of the film as well, you know? Even though you maybe didn't set out you know, I, I don't think anyone should set out to make a cult movie because I think often when you you feel that, you know, it was one of the things I think when we made All About Evil, it was like, let's make this movie and tell this story with the influences and the things that we like and hopefully people like it. I think that's the best way. And what I love, though, is because you and I love cult movies, there's this sort of intersectionality. Like, it was natural in All About Evil for us to put Elvira in the movie, for us to put Ming Stoll in the movie because that's the world that we love. That, that we there was no calculated thing. In your movie, you've got Pam Greer playing a detective, Detective Cruz, which is just so 
uh, amazing. And I mean, speaking of Greece, you know, you've got some, let's see, you've got Greece in the movie. You've got- uh, Jeff, Jeff Conaway. Jeff Conway, you've got um, Carol. Oh yeah, well, Carrie with PJ Souls, you know. And William Cat. Yeah. And William Cat. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so, you know, it, it, it is infused with this sort of uh, film reference, this sort of uh, knowledge of, you know, uh, of cult movies. It's sort of a pastiche. The movie is kind of a pastiche of things as well. And then, right. you know, I was so young when I wrote it. I had so many ambitions with it. You can see them quite overtly. You know, every, you know, but I think it also just has its own personality as well. So it's just fun that it's been able to, you know, I guess, be discovered by new people and keep going. Well, it's funny because it's sort of like the evil. It's like it's like the middle child between Mean Girls and Heather's. Yeah, you know, it often gets grouped in that in that in the three of those. And yeah, but it, it's, it's way it, meaner than Mean Girls. Yeah, and it's true. And, it, <laughs> but yeah, but it, and, and it's queerer than Heather's, you know. So it's that's it's, true. It's its own thing, but it hasn't right. gotten like like Heather's has a musical, Mean Girls has a musical on Broadway, and it's going to be now a movie a movie musical remake. I'm trying to catch up with my sisters to get the job record going in other capacities, but it's been hard because when you have such and, a yeah. And I was to say, can we ask you about that? What is what is the next steps of Jawbreaker? I know over the years there have been different well, we, iterations. Well, you did a musical. We, we developed it as a musical for the stage, and we had several readings in New York of that with with um, with some great people. And then we George who wrote GBF. He and I sold it to E. So we had that was like a reboot with like new car- older characters who kill their friend at a bachelorette party with a Jawbreaker ball gag. Uh, and now I'm pitching it as a limited series of the musical. And if that doesn't fly. I'm going to try to get it made as a straight up movie musical remake. I, I know, and you know, and I especially know being sort of uh, the queen of cult movies and especially queer cult movies, that there is a huge audience out there for it and that people really want this. So, uh, you know, if you're listening and you're a Jawbreaker fan, you know, say all the witchy powers you can and cast all the spells for Darren to uh, to get these projects off the ground. Because, you know, a lot of times what should be made isn't what's made. <laughs> so, you know, too uh, true. Yeah, these projects need need their well, we need the cult support. I mean, a lot of times, you know, it, it's really because of fans demanding that Disney relook at Hocus Pocus. You know, Disney had tossed that movie into the trash. They wanted nothing to do with it. You well, know, yeah. You know, that you have to demand these things. Yeah, Sony's never created any official merch for Jawbreaker. They have Which is crazy. They have tons of craft, the craft you know, can't hardly wait, like, Cruel Intentions, Jawbreaker. All they need to do is go on, like, Etsy or any of these um, websites and realize there's someone, there are people out there, I don't know if you're aware of this, Darren, but people are making coin on your movie. I know, and you I don't know, mind. By, by, I, I, yeah. I, no, I promote it. I don't mind it because I think it's just... It's, I know you do. But but um, but, but the, the first true merch that's coming out this year, which is going to be fun, is going to be the vinyl, the record on Mondo. Mondo oh, is putting so cool. out a beautiful record with songs that aren't even on the soundtrack, new artwork, it opens up, and there's a huge image of Rose inside, like tearing her, coming apart, you know, prom. The artwork's beautiful, and it's going to be official, an actual album that, that Sony- Oh, that's has, awesome. That all the girls have signed up That is awesome. On. Yeah. And also exciting, because anyone who is your friend or knows you or even sees your movies know, you have exquisite taste in music, and the music in Jawbreaker is awesome. So this is a good chance for people to really kind of take a little Darren Stein home uh, to listen on their record player. 
for sure. Yeah, and I know that we we started this conversation talking about the cult that has built up over the years, and so I'm wondering, uh, and I know I know you because we're friends, obviously, and I know that you uh, are really um, flattered by all of the fandom, but also smartly maybe don't um, get too deep. Uh, in it with folks because you know people really admire you and they want to be close to you because of this movie you made but i'm wondering like what's the what's the most surprising thing a fan has done as far as maybe their jawbreaker you know fandom goes oh god um you know have you hooked up with a jawbreaker fan? no i have not i mean i i, I will <laughs> I, I will be on dates well you know it's like what a lot of gay people love the movie, so I'll be on dates yeah. and people find out I made it and they'll be like, we'll have like a moment, like freaking out over it. <laughs> but I, I recently met this guy in real life at a at a restaurant at lunch and we were like making eyes at each other from across the room. And uh-huh. I went up to him afterwards because <laughs> he was like in a meeting and I was with a friend. I was like, and, I was, and we started talking and then he found out what I did and what films we made. I mentioned Jawbreaker and he was like, oh my God, I love that movie. It's so iconic. I'm like, thank you. He's like, yeah, you know, when I, I, I say peachy keen all the time, but inside I'm thinking peachy fucking keen because because <laughs> peachy keen is from from is my, actually my reference, my homage to Greece to Rizzo and peachy fucking keen is sort of Courtney's version of that. Um, right, right. And so I was like, oh, my God, he just not only is he a fan, but he said something like really not, not something insightful about it, which I liked. And then we texted him and he totally ghosted me. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah, he completely ghosted. Like I was like. And you know what? I'm at the age and the point of my life where I'm not going to like, I could have sent one more text and been like, hey, are you alive? Or hey, <laughs> do you have a fucking pulse? No, no, it's terrible. But like, you know, it's like, it's just funny. Wow. Well, now we're talking about it on a podcast. So yeah. I hope he doesn't hey, hear it. I, <laughs> hey, I have, an, I have an idea to pitch to you. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we should do this. Uh, what do you think? And Michael, you can chime in too. Okay. And, and maybe Rose, I'm sure she'll be really flattered by this idea. Um. Uh, well, it's Peaches Christ as Courtney Shane, like an illustration, like really flawless, beautiful Peaches Christ mashed up with Rose as Courtney and a really colorful big T-shirt. And then it says Peachy fucking Keen. Are you living for it? Living. Sure. Yeah. Why- Michael, you look, you're, Michael's, okay, a uh, home listener, you can't see the little bitchy pursed lips that Michael's giving my idea, my pitch session. He's turned his nose right up in the air. Darren did his best to at least amuse me uh, and say he liked like the it. idea. <laughs> but you don't love it? No, I think it's great. I just... I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect mashup, Peaches Christ and Jawbreaker. I think it's great. Oh my God. And okay, you've... so any of, any of you listeners that can draw... Could you please create some sketches so that Darren can review them? Yes. <laughs> Just, yeah. We're, we're getting business done here. <laughs> it's a merch meeting. That's, um, okay, that's... well, yeah, that, 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 that sort of, I sort of derailed things. I apologize. But um, Darren, we are uh, so thrilled that you came on our, you know, show. And of course, you know, you're one of my bestest friends, and I know um, Michael, you, me, we're all close. We're we're a coven, really, truly. Um, and we are we are um, supporting and excited to see uh, what's next for Jawbreaker, and especially for the cult of the movie um, Jawbreaker to to get the the next you know um, 
version of the story. Uh, and we, we are rooting for your project to, you know, well, make it to the screen very soon. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, the, the music for the musical is really great, you know, and it's been 10 years in the making. So whether it's- I remember the, when you played it for me. Do you remember yeah, that yeah, was yeah. like 10 years ago? Yeah, Joshua yeah, it's was so at my good. house. Peaches yeah. was at my house doing his makeup for the Elvira show. Remember at the New Art? Yeah, thing. yeah. And I was like, oh, I have this demo from these, these this composer and lyricist who made these songs for the Jawbreaker musical. Do you want to hear them? I haven't played it yet because I'm kind of scared to, hear, to listen to it. And Joshua was like, yeah, pop it in. And Joshua and a couple other people were over and everyone loved it. And it gave me that kind of like faith in it. Because oh, I, yeah. And I, it might be confusing, but Peaches's other name is Joshua. Um, and so uh, I was at I don't Darren's know who that house. is. <laughs> and it, I was getting ready for this show with Elvira. And I was actually putting on my makeup. And I'll never forget Darren playing me the music. And, you know, we all know what it's like when your friend is experiencing you know, kind of sharing something creative with you for the first time, like you're going to put on a, um, a certain amount of, or if you're a good friend, you're going to, you know, put on a certain amount of positive performance because that's the nice, you know, thing to do. But I remember trying to like really go the extra mile so that Darren knew I wasn't just being a friend. I was like, Darren, no, bitch, this is fucking good like the, the music is really good. This is better than most musicals like, oh, my God. So. Yes. And, and and if folks want to discover some of that music, you know, some of those um, sessions from New York City and things are on YouTube. You can actually go and listen to the music. It is fabulous. And I know it's go. I know this is going to happen for you. I know that I know that this cult, the jawbreaker, it's almost like a snowball, except it's a giant jawbreaker and it's just rolling down a mountain. And I mean, just in the last 15 years since you and I have been working on jawbreaker, you know, screenings and cult movies and things, um, that jawbreaker has grown and grown and grown and it's it's getting massive. So it's really only a matter of time. Totally agree. Because I feel like you're, you've been part of this, the whole jawbreaker story uh, ever since the first Well, Well, ever I, since the first- of me. Yeah, but ever since the successful, first- successful, yeah. yeah. The first, the first, <laughs> wait, remember that the first midnight mass screening at the bridge and Thomas Decker wrote a song yeah. called, called Jawbreaker or something? It was, it was really great. Yes, it was amazing. Yeah, he and his musician friend came up and he, um, he, he like sort of painted himself all different fluorescent colors and we put black lights on. Thomas is such a, Thomas Decker is such a, um, well, we really should interview Thomas for this Oh, yeah, he's we're a not fan. going yeah. to be Thomas is such an obsessed fan of Jawbreaker like he actually would be you know someone to talk to about uh yeah oh my god what were you gonna say the first someone brought him to my house for the first time and he could barely talk to me and it was like it was like a game night so there's like eight gays sitting around playing I don't know like trivial pursuit or something and every once in a while he'd pop out with a line, a line of dialogue <laughs> <laughs> and every gay in that room was just looking at him like, oh my God, like rolling their eyes. But Thomas just didn't care and just was going on and on. He was super young at the time. It was really sweet. But Thomas is also truly someone who has cult cinema in his DNA. I mean, yes. his childhood was on the set of John Carpenter movies. He is one of us yeah. through and through. And he yeah. really, really, really loves Jawbreaker. I mean, he... He is really, I mean, he is, he is probably one of Darren's number one fans. Well, you know, if I was a kid, um, for me, when I was a kid, that was Rocky Horror. Like I said, it was, it was Rocky Horror, yeah. it was Mommy Dearest, Pink Flamingos. Those, those were our, yeah. our movies. You're, you're his riffraff. <laughs> I'd rather be Magenta. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you don't have to 
dream it, Darren. Yeah, you can be it. I am. All right. Well, uh, now we're just going on and on. I could talk to you all day, but we we are going to uh, talk to some of your rabid, your most rabid fans next, uh, and in some of the, the the high priestesses from the cult of Jawbreaker that you've given birth to. And so, Darren, I hope that you'll come back and be on our show many, many, many times. Um, we can talk about cult movies again and again. We love you so much. Uh, thank yes. you so thank much. You, thank, thank you, thank you, Darren. You. I love you guys too. It's so much fun to do this. Okay. Well, that was our interview with our dear friend, Darren Stein. That was just so lovely. Don't you agree, Michael? I absolutely agree. I always love listening to Darren just talk about all of his various punk rock queer influence influences and seeing how they informed the DNA of this movie. Um, you know, I know that he's such a huge Rocky Horror fan. I love that we got a chance to talk about it and, and really point out that Rocky Horror isn't just an influence on Jawbreaker. There is... Rocky Horror dialogue in the movie. That's how much it means to him as he has has put it into his own work. Absolutely. And, you know, I know we touched on some of the other projects that Darren has been uh, uh, behind. And uh, just to reiterate, uh, you really all should check out uh, the documentary Put the Camera on Me, which, you know, goes into a lot more depth about where all of these influences came from. And you can actually see Darren as a kid reenacting, you know, scenes from Rocky Horror and doing fantastic lip syncs for her life uh, as a child. Yes. Um, as well as uh, the film he directed called GBF, um, which is really, really fun. And, and it's actually a, a movie about queer kids that doesn't make you cringe. You know, that's that's my problem with gay movies is I often watch them, you know, like between the, 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 the space and my fingers because I'm like, this is awful and this isn't how queer kids actually are. But GBF is actually very well done and I enjoy it. It's funny. What I think the great thing about GBF is that it does what a lot of really great queer art should and it provides a co social commentary. It's not merely just a trajectory for a coming out story of which, you know, we need those and there are some really great coming out movies. But GBF takes it to the next step. It, it talks about how you know, in society, a lot of queer people uh, are treated as commodity rather than people. And it, the exploring that through the tropes of high school is truly genius. And I think that, you know, what Darren did with the film and George Northey did with that script is another great entry into the high school film canon. And, you know, how many filmmakers get two? <laughs> so. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it's the, the dark queer version of John Hughes over here. Um, and, you know, Darren, I think, is I think if you enjoy Jawbreaker, uh, there's a lot about GBF that you're going to um, enjoy as well. Um, well, you know what I was going to say, Michael, is that Darren typically uh, has been, I think, a little ahead of his time. I think both with Jawbreaker and GBF. You know, I actually think he's one of those filmmakers. If 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 there's a struggle, it's it's that maybe his vision is is so ahead of its time that the the world takes a little while to catch up to it. And um, speaking of that, I, I think we actually have one of the most interesting um, 
guests to introduce because she is uh, our jawbreaker fanatic. You know, as we do on the Midnight Mass podcast, we like to dive into the actual people that make up these cults that surround the films we discuss. And uh, Eve Lindley, who is our special guest, get this, Michael, she was like six years old when Jawbreaker came out. Oh, uh, same. Haha, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, were you? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> I was like, interview's over. No, but the look of terror on your face when I said that was amazing. That was worth it yeah, for me. <laughs> th- this, this podcast is canceled. I'm canceling it. I'm going to cancel you and the podcast. No, I actually don't care. It's true. I'm old. I uh, just think it's so amazing that this is, this is that uh, person who grew up with the film, you know, was introduced to it at a very young age and it had a very formative um uh, effect on her uh, life. And I think that's fascinating, you know, and I'm so glad we got to speak to someone who can really speak so passionately about why this film uh, is important. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that Eve Lindley is a fantastic actor in her own right. Absolutely. Right? She, uh, yeah, she's in this TV show, uh, Dispatches from Elsewhere, um, which I I'm going to watch. I have not seen it yet, but uh, I've heard it is fantastic. And do you know who her co-star is in that film? I or do TV not. show? It's not a film. It's the flying nun herself, <gasps> the star of Mrs. Doubtfire, Sally Field. So, you know, Eve, Eve is, you know, co-starred uh, alongside an Academy Award winner. So, you know, you got to watch her. Her star is clearly rising. She's been named in Out Magazine's Out 100. Uh, she's been a model and worked with Barney's New York. She's also in the film All We Had. Uh, and she is the star or one of the stars of Dispatches from Elsewhere. So with all of that, uh, most importantly, she is an obsessed Jawbreaker fan. Uh, so let's introduce her now. Here's our conversation with Eve Lindley. Yay. Welcome back, listeners. Well, as you know, you cannot have a cult film without the cult who supports it. And today we are very lucky to be joined not just by a Jawbreaker superfan, but a star in her own right. You may know her from Dispatches from Elsewhere or All We Had. Please welcome to the show, Eve Lindley. Hi. Hi, Eve. (laughs) It's so great to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you. I mean, obviously, you know, you're a performer. You are doing all sorts of wonderful work in film and television yourself. So to hear you come and celebrate a movie you love is just, you know, what we're all about here. So I guess I I have to ask, first off, when did you discover Jawbreaker? Like, tell us about your journey with this movie as a fan. Absolutely. Um, I, it was, I, so I'm the youngest of three and I have two older sisters and, um, I kind of grew up in the 90s, so it was like teen movie central in my house. And we rented everything that you can think of. And I just, I first remember seeing the cover and being like, whoa, this is amazing with the like legs and the jawbreakers. And of course the like colors popped out at me and I was probably way too young to watch it, but, I watched it and I just, I didn't quite understand the campiness at first, but I loved that it was like dangerous and girly and like 
you know, it just had such a punch to it. Um, and uh, it's just, I've never put it down. <laughs> wow. So do you remember, um, so it sounds like you rented it or did you buy it? We rented it. I don't think okay. my, cause I watched it to death and I don't think my mom was about to buy it cause she knew it would be just on all the time. So that, that's actually, that's actually where I was going with it. Like how, how many viewings could you get out of it? You know, with one rental, but it sounds like you got more than one. Yeah, we definitely, cause we went to, we didn't even have a blockbuster. We had a Hollywood video and, um, I think actually it was rented for like a slumber party for my sisters. And I don't even ah. think they watched it like, or they didn't finish it. It was like too dark for them. And then I was like, I watched it probably eight times before we even returned it that time. <laughs> and then I was like, can we rent this again? Like every weekend. Oh, that's so great. And what do you think, you know, uh, that connection that you had, obviously the, the video cover spoke to you. My my guess is, much like Michael and myself, you um, were the kid who liked things a little bit darker, a little, you know, maybe a little spooky. Because, you know, the, the cover shows you that it's, it's colorful and teen, um, but it's also pretty clear that it's dark and deadly. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely uh, like an undertone to even just the cover where it's like some shit's about to go down. Um, and yeah, my favorite movie, like my first favorite movie was Halloween, um, oh. which, you know, similarly is like about teen girls and like a dark kind of uh, energy. <laughs> so um the, I think for me, it was like the idea that the, the dark energy could be the teen girls was like kind of mind blowing. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting that you you mentioned your love of Halloween and then sort of your love of this movie, because not only is PJ Souls, of course, in both films, but when, when you talk about queer connection to cinema, a lot of people have remarked upon the fact that in Halloween, Laurie Strode as other and outsider looking at these popular girls wanting to just kind of be part of their club. In a way, Laurie is Haddonfield's Fern, except, you know, her evening goes a little differently than Fern's trajectory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I really liked when you said that you liked uh, how girly this movie was uh, because, you know, here we are, we're talking about Fern, we're talking about Laurie and sort of that outside looking in nature that both of these films have. And when we were talking to Darren, and, and Darren has commented all the time, frequently upon the idea that each of the girls is sort of an archetype, and fans of the movie tend to gravitate towards a Courtney, towards you know, uh, towards Roxy or whoever. Uh, who is your favorite in this movie? I think. Well, it's it, the movie has been such a like presence in my life that it's like every um, few years I'm like oh I feel like her and I think at first I was like Courtney Shane is the coolest bitch on the block and like you know she was like Rizzo she was like the head you know uh the queen bee and I loved that and then in like high school I had this come to Jesus moment come to Satan moment maybe um <laughs> where where I like realized I as a trans woman was like, you know, like Fern, as a kid, I would glamorize women and I loved like Marilyn and, you know, all of these sort of vintage beauties. 
And I kind of would just imagine their lives and I would like play act their lives in my bedroom and all of that. And I, I said this to Darren um, when I, when we first started talking, I always felt like Fern kind of mirrored the experiences of a trans woman in particular. Um, you know, she like is kind of drab and feels invisible. And then she like, you know, fully transitions into this like bombshell. She changes her name. She like gets kind of swept up in the glamour and the beauty of it all and kind of forgets that, you know, she kind of forgets to be a good person. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, you know, but that's like, that's like her price, like to be this beautiful, glamorous woman. She leaves behind parts of herself and, um, and then she comes back around and like kind of, you know, has her own come to Satan moment. Right. She kind of is able to figure out how to like have both in a way, which is which is really, you know, uh, lovely because with Courtney, there's really no journey. Right. Like Courtney is, you know, she's the Freddy Krueger. She's like, you know, which is so delicious and so fun. And I think as kids, especially, I love that you sort of can follow your trajectory with, you know, the characters, because of course, as kids, especially um, as little queer kids, you know, how fun and amazing is Courtney? I mean, does not, you know, doesn't suffer fools, isn't afraid of anybody, including Pam fucking Greer, you know, like, <laughs> she, you know, she's amazing. And she looks flawless. And, you know, and Rose is just perfection at delivering that, you know, sort of, um, you know, I mean, insanely bitchy dialogue right and judy greer while also very over the top you know you you go on this journey with her and you you sort of you know understand you know uh more of her on a deeper level and i think i have to say this is very personal but like you're sharing that with Darren as someone who's a very close friend of Darren's. It was very meaningful for him. And, you know, he talked to me about it uh, right away. So I'm really glad that you had were able to articulate that experience to the writer and director. Because, like, often people don't get to have, especially as, you know, directors or content creators, you don't get that kind of feedback. And I think that was very uh, powerful for Darren to know that the movie spoke to you in that way, you know, because on its surface, Jawbreaker, you know, might be dismissed as something, especially by film critics and movie snobs, you know, it's something um, trivial and silly. Um, but the reality of it is this cult, the cult of Jawbreaker fans, because I've done many, many Jawbreaker screenings with Darren and the girls, um, these fans connect with it in a way that is not trivial. You know, it is very real. You know, they really, really are attached to this film and, and something very deep about it speaks to queer kids in particular. And I think you articulated it so well. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just like, like you said, it's like at first I kind of came for the camp and for the, you know, the Rose McGowan and her like unapologetic evil. And, yeah. you know, before, I didn't even like realize what, what it was that I connected with so much, but, um, you know, Fern and it's Judy does such a beautiful job of kind of towing that line of being like campy and over the top. And also her heart comes through in so many moments. And, um, and yeah, I think, I think it's just a 
a connection that runs so deep. In some of these queer movies, I, I feel like um, there's this uh, aesthetic. Because I was thinking about it, like, why as young queer people are we per in particular drawn to certain kinds of films? And obviously Darren and I, because we're of a similar age, we grew up loving a lot of the same movies. And, you know, um, we now know what a lot of Darren's influences were in terms of making Jawbreaker. But there is a certain movie whose aesthetic to me is like going to a great drag show. And what I mean by that is, you know, a great drag show isn't just drag queens celebrating opulence and, and decadence. It's it's them celebrating it for the entire queer audience, you know, so that, that everyone in the room gets this sort of pushed reality, this sort of, this mockery of normalcy and this sort of, you know, we're going to do everything bigger. We're going to do it better. We're going to, we're going to take femininity and we're going to, we're going to make it crazy, you know? And I think with Jawbreaker, much like, you know, other films we, we've discussed, but Jawbreaker, of course, Showgirls, you know, there's these sort of movies where, you know, the, the sheer aesthetic, of them just brings us joy, you know, and right. I hate to say it, but maybe some straight people, and I know we have a lot of straight listeners because this is a cult movie called podcast, and some of you may sleep with people of the opposite sex, and that technically makes you straight, but, you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet that there's a little queerness in you if you love movies like Showgirls and Jawbreaker because the aesthetic is so fabulous. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but... You know, I think Absolutely. Jawbreaker fits into that canon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what when Foxy says, like, you know, it's all in the details. I mean, just their clothing to me was like mind blowing because, you know, I love Clueless. I love these sort of 90s mo movie moments, fashion movie moments. But they're so, um, they end up being in the 90s. And there's something about Jawbreaker, like their silhouettes are not 90s. You know, the most 90s girl in it is Fern at the beginning. And she looks out of place in this world. She looks drab and, you know, but her outfit would be sold at American Apparel, I'm sure. But, you know, like, it's, <laughs> it, it, there's something about the like pencil skirts and like that kind of heightened glamour that, I mean, I really haven't seen it since in any teen film, like that it's so elegant and sort of um, refined like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when we talk about the lens through which we view the film, because one of the things that Darren was sh that shared with Peaches and I, that you also brought to his attention that he hadn't even really considered, and he, he was saying made a lot of impact based on a conversation with you, is that you had told him that you kind of feel that the film does not have either a male or a female gaze, it simply is. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, there's obviously like that moment with Dane that's like where he's kind of lounging on Courtney's bed that is like very gazy in any, for both men and women. Um, right. But I don't think any of these girls are ever you know, from the point of view of a woman, I don't think any of them are ever objectified um, in a way that is, uh, you know, helpless. It's like they're always, um, they always want, they, they seem to be in control of that objectification, whether it's like Courtney in just a corset, you know, with like her bra kind of hanging out or whatever. Like it's, there's not... Um, and that's another thing about like teen movies of the nineties is like the girls get makeovers because they're not worthy of men. 
and then they get a makeover and then they're worthy of a man. And Fern's makeover is not about anybody other than herself. Like this is who she wants to be. This is her, this is how she's always felt on the inside and she can like express it, you know? Yeah. So like all of that seems to come from within and it's never about the people watching you know, the other characters watching them. That is, that's actually huge. Like I had never thought of that before because I think one thing about Jawbreaker that's been an interesting for me is I got to see it in the movie theater and really immediately was like, oh my God, this is crazy. This is wild. Now I grew up, of course, obsessed with John Hughes movies and then Heather's and, you know, and then very shortly after that, Darren and I met in person and it was kind of like, where have you been my whole life? You know? And so I, I actually got to be befriend very quickly we became very, very close friends. And then in some ways you stop thinking about it because you've met this person, you're friends with the person. But now looking back on the film and kind of, you know, getting to talk to people like you, that's a lovely uh, thing that I hadn't considered that in all of these, because uh, there is sort of, in addition to the high school teen drama, there is sort of this, this uh, you know, butterfly genre of film where you know an ugly duckling you know gets made over but you're right it's often for the affection or the attention or you know the the yeah, yeah to impress someone sexually or whatever and that is not what this is at all you know it's about her becoming this this thing that she obviously wanted to be or become you know and and it has nothing to do at any point with a boy. And that is amazing when you think about the genre. Yeah, it's like groundbreaking. I mean, yeah. like we, especially at that time, it's like movies were all about winning affection, you know, and um, certainly the ones I was watching with two older sisters. And, you know, it, it, I, that's like another huge thing that spoke to me. And even the way that like Dane is disposable to Courtney, like Courtney would never once dream or think about wearing something for Dane, you know, <laughs> like she's completely. Yeah. That is so funny that you mentioned that because I said to Darren, uh, when we were having our conversation, it's sort of like Courtney's the worst of the worst of kind of girls in a way. But but I don't really even think that's the end of it. Like she's really the worst of the worst of like gay guys. Like like she, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> like she is merely seeing these men as just sexual objects and w the ways in which she can use them. And I love the sort of um kind you know the sort of non judgmental way that she uh you know brings Marilyn Manson home and, and has her way with him. And in a teen movie in the late 90s, for that not to mean that she was a drug addict and damaged goods and, you know, a whore and the class, you know, she's still the most popular girl. It's very twisted in a, in a wonderful way that we hadn't seen before, you know. It, it's, it's still kind of shocking, you know. Um, and I love that the way that her character is just like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is what you do. This is how you do it, you know? <laughs> yeah, you do it to, you know, get prom queen, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, amazing. I think she says something like, Dane is a picture, you know? Like, she, he's just there to be the picture. And, like, the idea that she's, like, going out every night and having 
you know, sex with like truck drivers or like whatever is like, that's, that's agency, you know, that's um, kind of amazing. So when we think about cult films, what sets them apart from the movies that we watch on in our day to day life is they kind of go through life with us. We embrace them in a different way. We, we put them inside and you talk about how, when you first rented this movie, and how you interpreted it and, and took it in then. And then later you revisited it, looking at Fern's journey and how it applied to your own situation. This movie, you're growing with this movie. This grow, this movie grows with you. Where is your relationship with Jawbreaker now? Like what, what have you learned, if anything, or how do you relate to the film today? Wow. Um, I mean, I have like a, a very short list of movies that I watch at least once a year, if not more. And with Jawbreaker, it's like I watch it once and I immediately want to watch it again. Um, but I, I think as I've gotten older and like, you know, I, I'm really starting to admire it as almost like an opera where it's like, these are not like, we don't want to emulate Jawbreaker, you know, like we don't like as a, as a teen, you don't realize like, you know, we were just talking about like Courtney and her sexual agency with like strange men. And like, obviously like teenage girls should be careful and, you know, not do that. But so it's like, it's interesting as I've gotten older, they're like, this happens with a lot of films where you're like, oh, that's like really bad. Like we, I shouldn't, <laughs> you know, I can't believe I aspired to be like that character who's like, you know, a bad person or a bad girl or whatever. Um, but with Jawbreaker, it's like, I'm, I, I feel like I'm just, I'm still under the spell. I, you know, I maybe want, maybe I identify a little more with Julie as somebody who's like, struggling to be a good person and like struggling to like you know right a wrong that she feels responsible for um she's probably the most like uh realistic human in the movie um but yeah I don't know I just I I don't think my love of Jawbreaker will ever go anywhere no matter how like how real life I get as a person, you know? Yeah, I love that you are um, articulating this sort of journey with the film where, you know, you're introduced to it as a young person and, you know, you you are immediately drawn to Courtney, of course, you know, and, you know, over time, right. especially uh, as you're, you know, coming out or, or maybe to yourself, your own I identity as a trans person, you know, relating to the Fern Violet character, you know, and her journey. And then over time, as you, you know, kind of evolve and you know we we sort of balance out as we get older and more mature and you know all that of course um the julie character is you know maybe the most centered you know of of the of the whole film because she's you know she's actually the only person in the movie who seems to have it isn't really a cartoon character right like she, right, she's yeah. maybe the only one that's not living in the sort of well really it's kind of like a fairy tale or an opera like you're, you're describing it's sort of this this allegorical thing and it's a world in which i think 
the reason as young people we love it and we connect with it is because who wouldn't want to go to a high school where girls walk in slow motion wearing those outfits? You know, who who wouldn't want to go to that high school? You know, um, that's amazing. But yeah, over time, you know, and and I have to say, I think um, as far as the performances go, everyone in this film does a really great job of pushing the limit. And in Rebecca in particular, does a really great job of, of restraining herself. And she she actually has a harder job to do because Rebecca's sort of the, the straight man, for lack of a better term, in a world of insanity, yeah. right? And Rebecca's such a great actress, you know? She's so great. I yeah. love her. I love her and everything she's ever done. I've, I've often told Darren, uh, as I get older, Julie has become my favorite character because to maintain sanity in an insane world is the hardest thing to do. And Rebecca does it with flying colors in the movie. Uh, but we, of course, we also worship the cartoony evil of everyone around her. So it's so delicious. And I hope to age into a Ms. Sherwood as I, you know, continue to grow or, or a Vera Cruz. That would be I was really going to say, <laughs> I would want to be Vera Cruz. If anyone, when she slams that jawbreaker, uh, on the desk, it's just perfection. Yeah, and yeah. and 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 for for anyone who's worried about poor Rebecca having to uh, you know play the uh, the straight role in in Jawbreaker, you, you know don't 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 fret because if you haven't seen Urban Legend, you know trust me, <laughs> trust me, yeah. she really gets to chew the scenery, and that's yeah. where she, I really you know I'm in the Rebecca Gayhart fan club because I you know I, I've yeah. gotten to work with her a few times, and I you know, look at those movies and I go, wow, what a talent, you know, especially yeah. when you look at Jawbreaker and Urban Legend back to back, that's a double feature, you know. Get you a girl who can do both. Totally. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Eve, we have just had such a good time talking to you and we know that your star is rising and we, you know, are so happy to see uh, you working in this, this, hard industry to work in and we're going to be supporting you and and following you and we just are so thrilled that you came on the podcast to talk with us thank you so much thank you so much it was so fun i had a really great time and um i just want to say that you know many years ago i was doing a google search trying to figure out more about elvira and peaches came up and i've been a fan ever since so this is really really cool for me Oh, thank you. That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, we will talk to you again soon. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Eve. Oh, my God. And that was Eve Lindley, the fantastic actor who has obviously been so greatly inspired by Jawbreaker. Wasn't she lovely, Michael? I thought she was amazing. And what I really appreciated about what she brought to the conversation was that the the examination of kind of the journey of all the different characters that you can take as a queer person. Yeah, it's true. That actually was super fascinating that as a young person, and I totally get this, she related to the villain, right, of course. And then as a person who was coming into her own as far as understanding her own trans identity, she related to Fern slash Violet, but then realized that, you know, that person also lacks a decent moral compass, you know. <laughs> and once you figure your shit out, you know, she identifies, I guess, today, you know, most with Julie, the Rebecca Gayhart character, who's the 
the only really actually normal person in the movie, really. No, and it makes sense, though, because I always think about it when you kind of get that image of a bunch of, like, gay men sitting around uh, at brunch talking about sex in the city. Like, I'm such a Carrie or I'm right. such a, 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 a Samantha. No one ever says they're a Miranda, but the reality is it's because everyone's sort of a Miranda. Right. Because they're the most grounded, real character. And I think in the world of Jawbreaker, we all want to... Uh, aspire to the ultra nature of Courtney Shane or the transformative power of Fern Mayo. But I, I think if you you land on realizing that you're a Julie, you're doing all right in life. I think you're right. And I think with, well, with Eve, I can say this. Um, I, because of this podcast, um, got to actually see and meet her in person. She's definitely a Julie. She is a sweet, lovely kind woman who uh, I really fucked over. What? (laughs) (laughs) Not intentionally, but like I was in New York and I reached out to her to have lunch and I gave her the name of a place and of course I didn't give her the right address and I went to the other one on the uh, in Hell's Kitchen, this rotisserie chicken restaurant, a French place, and she went to the one uh, in the on the east side of town, in the East Village, and we're waiting for each other, and then I call her and realize I'm at the wrong one, and so I say, don't worry, I will walk to you. Now, I don't know if you know, but in the humidity of, uh, of a New York summer, walking from one side of town to the next is horrifying. I mean, it's a horror movie. So I decide I'm gonna be a, like a real New Yorker and jump onto a subway, and I go down there, I figure it out, I'm waiting, 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 literally 20, 30 minutes before realizing I'm on the wrong platform. Oh no. (laughs) And call her again, tell her I'm on my way, finally get over there. I stood her up for one whole hour and she could not have been kinder or more forgiving. So Eve, um, I owe you one big time. But it, Michael, that's the power of the Midnight Mass podcast. It's bringing people together. Truly, but maybe in the future we shouldn't uh, give our guests crash courses in drag time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. Although I will say this, I, 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 and you know this, I don't really run on drag time. And so the stress of running late, the anxiety it causes me is so tremendous that um, I just hope that she didn't think I was a complete nutcase by the time I got there. No, and it is true. I will I will clarify for all listeners. I've known Peaches for a number of years, and she is one of the most punctual people I know. Thank so. you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I, I think that about wraps it up. Jawbreaker is something that Michael and I will continue to celebrate for years to come. The cult is just growing by leaps and bounds. And we know that Darren... Um, is going to uh, get another Jawbreaker off the ground in the near future. Another Jawbreaker project, I should say. You know, something. We know he's working on various incarnations. Yes, there's always another teen dream to be killed. That's right. And remember, all of you uh, teens and, uh, well, any aged people really out there, uh, if you're listening to us right now, you're all children of the popcorn now. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. 
The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunn. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>